It's the European Championships on Caught Offside. It's the teenager, Bukayo Saka, one of the youngest players ever to play in the European Championship. He's got to score here to keep England alive. And he does it! And Italy are champions of Europe! They do it in a shootout. They did it the hard way. Behind after two minutes. Again after penalties. And England are foiled again. And at Wembley. Now here's Andrew Gunman and JJ Devan. Caught offside from the suburbs of New York City and from Ireland. Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney, the Euro Cup final recap special. Oh my God. What's up, brother? Uh, that was about as tense and sweaty a final as you'll get. It wasn't a classic, but it was some compelling viewing. And uh, football is going to Rome. It sure is. Um, I'm glad you, you brought that up straight out of the gate. The, the tenseness of that. I, I was thinking as that match was, was kind of in extra time and certainly when it went to penalties, like just sometimes when you're watching a sporting event as a neutral, you, I don't know, you just can't help but like, it's just raw, however you're feeling. Like if you have a right. vested interest, you always know what you're going to be feeling watching a game. When the U.S. are playing Mexico, I know I'm going to be nervous watching. The, like you go into a game as a neutral, you're not really going in with the expectation of feeling like, butterflies in your stomach that game was in extra time and definitely in penalties i can't remember too many other times watching a game as a pure neutral right feeling as like stomach churning nervous as i was watching that game today yeah i had stomach churning nerves for another reason it is but no you point. do have a vested interest that's but yeah that's, of course there's no yeah. point saying anyone in my house or anyone in in, in my locale was was neutral uh, there was very much a result that most of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and probably a lot of Europe, the rest of the world really wanted. And um, and ultimately, we got there, but um, it was compelling stuff, really compelling stuff, right down to the end. There's a lot to dissect. Um, and in some cases, there's some some interesting talking points and blame to be laid, as there always is. But to, to fit, I know penalties... I know it's a shame. People say it's a shame. it's a shame the game had to finish on penalties. I think it was a fitting end to that game, okay. personally, because it wasn't like this was open end to end, free flowing stuff. It, it really wasn't a final befitting the tournament that had happened before it. But the final, final, the penalties, the the denouement of the game suited suited this game, suited this final. The penalties were as much of a roller coaster, I guess, as you can get in that format. Um, and look, the, the the old school newsman in me, JJ says, never bury the lead. Don't bury the uh, lead. So some some people will want to take you through this recap of this game minute by minute from minute zero up through the, the 120th and penalties. We're going right to the end of the book here. And we're going to start from the back and then we'll read our way forward. Penalties. First of all, I'm, I feel... I mean, I feel bad for a lot of people. I feel particularly sorry for Marcus Rashford and Jaden Sancho, who yes. were clearly brought on for that reason and who both, there's no other way to put it, they both failed in what they were brought on specifically to do. 
uh, that was that was tough to watch because you knew that and you know forever for the rest of time. I don't know how yes. many trophies they'll go on to win. They're going to beat themselves up over what happened at Wembley today for the rest of their lives. For sure. And um, as one of our tweeters pointed out, I hope that nobody else beats them up uh, along with it. But knowing the nature of English media and certain sections of the English fan base, we, we can't be sure we can be certain that well, that will see. happen. We'll see. Yeah, I hope not. Um, you say they failed. But Andrew, is it not a failure of imagination to be bringing on Jaden Sancho to take one kick of a ball in a final? Is that not really the nub of what happened here tonight? Ultimately, conservative Middle England Gareth, centrist Gareth, boring Gareth, when there was a game there to be won in 90 minutes, he didn't do it. And bringing Sancho on and Rashford on, for that matter, was actually, in a way, setting them up to fail. How so? Because their talents, like Jaden Sancho, his talents are so raw, so real. We've seen them in the Bundesliga. We know what he can do. When there was a game to be won in normal time, he should have been on the field from then. Maybe then he has a little bit longer to feel his way into the game, but you're heaping pressure on him to do just this one thing when maybe his skills could have been used in another way. Yeah, I always wonder about that. Like, I mean, sometimes you'll see it in other sports. You know, you'll see it in basketball with a three-point specialist who's been sitting and is cold all game, and then he's brought in with a second left in a three-point game. Like, is that the right way to go? A guy who has not, like, built up any kind of sweat, who hasn't been a part of the flow of the game, and then throw him in for the most crucial moment? I don't know. I mean, look, some ultimately, if, if you know, Donnarumma dives the other way and Sancho makes his penalty. Like maybe right. we're, we're saying, Oh, it was a good move. I mean, Rashford, you, you could tell, you know, this is such Monday morning quarterbacking, but JJ, how many of these penalty shootouts have we watched? I swear to you when Rashford was standing over the ball in that kind of straight line, took oh. a weird circuitous route, stopped his run up. I mean, in, I, I said out loud by myself in the room I was watching, he's missing. No. I said it out loud. My girlfriend who is a, I mean, she's watching enough soccer now at this point, and she, the, the penalty is missed off the butt of the post, and she, there's a silence in the room because it's so tense, and she just goes, too elaborate. And I thought about what you said, and I was like, yeah, there was like three different styles of penalty in one penalty. The straight run-up, then a little bit of a curve, then a little bit of a stutter, and then ultimately not a very good penalty. Um, I, I would like to give myself a pat on the back. I knew Jorginho was going to miss. I, I won't say that. I knew Pickford would have his homework done uh-huh. and that Jorginho's style of penalty does lend itself to being saved. And it didn't happen against Unai Simon, but it did happen against Jordan Pickford. Um, but there was more drama to come after that. Well, so in, in terms of ways to lose a penalty shootout, from the perspective of a fan, can there be anything more gut-wrenching than saving the penalty that would beat you new life. Oh my God, we're back. We thought we were dead. We're, Oh my God, we just lost. Like it's just as gut wrenching a way as a penalty shootout can end, especially with Jorginho who has spent the better part of the last several days being praised from North America through Europe, through Asia for his penalty taking ability. You stopped him. Like it was always written in the stars that it would be him. They stop him. And then they lose anyway. And it was just horrifying to watch. Now, one of the, the things we've been told about England since 2018, since Gareth Southgate took over, is no longer 
is it a lottery? I remember Glenn Hoddle when they lost the penalties in 98. He was manager of England. Mm. Uh, and Glenn Hoddle goes, well, you know, penalties is a lottery. Well, <laughs> no, you do your train and you do your work. And remember in Russia, Pickford had the list on his water bottle of potential penalty takers and which side they would go where they left footed. He had all this homework done. Is it not a flaw then to say you shouldn't have such an important penalty falling to a 19 year old? I, I suppose, but I also, you know, we could be sitting here having the same conversation if Southgate decided to leave in somebody who was just generally speaking an inferior penalty taker mm. when he knows he has guys who he sees these guys in training, they work on this in every session, you know, he knows who's good and who's not at this, who's better than this at others. So like it's, it's damned if you do damned, if you don't, in the end, it it wound up biting him. Can I actually strike that from the record from myself? Stupid question guys. Cause would we be saying anything like this? If it was Pedri, who was a child as well, taking a penalty, we wouldn't. So, you know, this is a professional footballer as well. I know it was a lot of pressure Saka found himself in, but you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be, I'm almost like patronizing him by saying, oh, look, he's 19. Should a 19 year old be taking a penalty? 19 year olds have taken penalties before. So I take he's that been back. a key part of this team throughout this run. Like his... he has, and he seems generally cool. Um, yeah. And he even kept his head somehow when uh, old butcher Chiellini decided to horse collar him oh. at the end of normal time. <laughs> It's really what he did. We'll talk more about that. I, I just, the, the last bit, I guess, on the penalty shoot that, uh, shootout that I wanted to mention, what you mentioned there with Glenn Hoddle talking about this being a lottery. Um, it's so interesting because I do fluctuate on that. I, I guess mm. in the end, where I stand on it in terms of penalty shootouts, um, this is lame to say, it's, it's clearly a bit of both. Like, for example, you see the penalty that Harry Maguire took. That's a great penalty. Like, that's not luck. When you strike a ball like that, I don't care who the goalkeeper is, how great he is, how big he is, he can't save it. Mm-hmm. All right, there's no luck there. That's, that's skill, that's talent. You know, in terms of goalkeepers and the, the homework that they do, like Pickford, we assume on Jorginho, that's not luck. That's skill, that's talent, well, no. that's, that's work. But there well, is an element of, we see all the time, guys take bad penalties, goalkeepers guess the wrong way, they score on them, and they're not vilified. Oh, good penalty. No, it wasn't. We see it all the time. No, it was a bad penalty. The goalkeeper guessed the wrong way. So there is, undoubtedly, there is also a huge element of luck along with the skill that it takes to be good. Uh, yeah, and I, I should say that Pickford clearly guessed that Jorginho was not going to go to the left, his left-hand side, to, to Jorginho's right, he was going to go to the, Jorginho's left, Pickford's right this time. So he was going to do the switcheroo on him, right. and he got it right. And that in itself, diving that way in itself, is a gamble. Um, one thing I did get right, Bellotti. You look at all the goals he scored for Torino over the past few years. Look how experienced he is as a Serie A striker. I had no faith in him, Andrew. The run-up... Uh, the the telegraph penalty with the inside of the foot. Um, by the way, very similar to Sancho's penalty, which was telegraphed too. Really, I mean, very disappointing. But um, and I just thought to myself, I know Immobile has scored goals earlier in the competition, but Italy have won a major tournament without a really really potent centre forward, out and out striker, and um, and that's pretty amazing too. Yeah, it was, I mean, in the truest sense of the words, it it was a team effort from them. I mean, contributions from everybody. In the end, 
with Italy, I would say Federico Chiesa is the player I come away from this tournament most impressed with. Oh yeah. Andrew, when he, what did you think when, when, when he went off and he was genuinely injured? Cause I thought he was faking it at first when he got pushed by Kyle Walker, but he clearly went over in his ankle. Yeah. And when he eventually had to give up the ghost and couldn't stay on, I thought, Oh, good night. Really good night. So I did not think good night simply because it didn't look like at that stage in the game, England were trying to win. Uh, uh, so that is actually a really good point And a really key sentence in this whole entire game. Like, I, so, okay, Italy clearly had just lost their most creative attack-minded threat and maybe their most in-form attacking player in Chiesa. Like, that and the was guy who kept going, like, tried right. to pull them up by their bootstraps into the game. That was obviously a blow for them. There's no question about it. But it was like asking England at that point to suddenly flip the switch from defending for your lives to going in all out attack and winning this thing in normal time. I mean, it kind of felt like trying to turn around a cruise ship. Uh, and, and ultimately that is what happened. It wasn't until about the 110th minute when England decided, okay, now we're going to go all out. We don't want any part of penalties. We want to win this one in 120 minutes. And they went all out in England and, and Italy. Then it was a total role reversal. Italy sat back and defended for their lives. And there were a couple harrowing moments corner kicks, a long throw in from Kyle Walker where the ball's kind of bouncing around in the box. Raheem Sterling uh, made a nice move to get into the, the penalty area in a similar position where he went down against Denmark, but it was defended perfectly by Chiellini. So there were there were some moments there, but ultimately, yeah, Chiesa went off and it was bad, but it didn't it didn't necessarily change my opinion of which direction the game was was heading. And I, mu I must say that the substitutes that came in really did contribute. I thought Bernardeschi tried very hard um, kind of playing in a a quasi center forward moment uh, mode um, because Belotti, Belotti was brought on much later, um, which suggested to me what what I felt about him in general across this tournament. Mancini felt that he couldn't be relied on in center forward to do what needed to be done. Um, Brian Cristante, I thought he I thought he did really well. He tried those he tried to make those runs beyond the defenders, um, but Chiesa was Chiesa was so key to bringing Italy back into the game. Damien Duff was on Irish commentary for RTE. And he, you know what he said? He said, it's not just a case of Italy bringing themselves back into the game. England brought Italy back into the game with their performance after the goal for most of the, I would say actually from the midway point through the second half or to the first half and then the entire second half, England found a way to bring Italy into this one. And... Quite, quite strange, Andrew. Quite a strange performance. Um, so we actually should we, we go have, back? Should we go back and now kind of go through the game like that? I, th I think that's a good way to do it, right? So yeah, so it's interesting because so yes, England score in the second minute. It was, I mean, it was a great goal. Yeah, um, Kane. Oh, Andrew, it was. Look, it was a brilliant goal. Kane yeah. drops in, receives the ball off Shaw, switches the play to Trippier, who gets down and delivers a brilliant ball, and Shaw's already made up all that ground. And to hit that ball coming up off the volley in off the side of the post was just a brilliant, brilliant finish and a brilliant goal. And actually, England for maybe 15, 20, 25 minutes were all swarmed Italy. It, they yeah. made that fast start. Italy couldn't get into the game. Uh, Phillips and Rice were smothering in the midfield. There was none of the rotations, none of uh, Italy's ability to get on the ball and, and create um, passages of play like Insigne. Couldn't do it. They were there was this just this brilliant press at certain points 
by England. And if anything, England looked like they were going to score a second for a while. Yeah, so it's interesting. That's that's the thing about this game tonight. It's going to be painted as, and I feel bad a little bit because I already kind of came out and said this myself. I'm going to walk it back a little now. This game is going to be remembered as a game where England scored and then decided, okay, we're done and we're going to defend for our lives. And that is not entirely true. Mm. Uh, so the first half, I actually thought that England were excellent in that they scored that goal. Like you said, for the next 10 to 15 minutes, they continued to go for it. They almost had the same goal again. It was the same they had a similar play of Kane to Trippier who played in a ball that was just beyond the reach. I think of Sterling, it might've been. It was 11 minutes. Kane again in that inside left position switches it again. And there's a cross come in and, and it was almost Sterling got on the end of it. Right. But so they then, did that same thing. And even when, sorry, to cut across you, Andrew, Andrew, but on 24 minutes, even when Italy tried to break, there was a break and it's three Italy attackers and six England defenders. You know, those videos we watch at Bielsa's, uh, leads when there's a guy breaking away and all of a sudden they swarm like a hive of wasps mm -hmm. and, the, and, the, and they just stop the attack. That was England. Right. And, and so what became interesting then as the first half wore on was that, okay, it, it seems like England is going to settle back now in, into this back five that they have out there and they're going to play a more defensive style to try to see this one out. But like we can criticize it, but for at least that first half, it, it worked beautifully. Uh, there, Italy, I think, in the first half had six shots, right. one on target. The shot on target was a nothing shot. It was a dribbler to Pickford. It was nothing. And the six shots, I mean, th these were like, th I took a few notes here Shanked. in that first half. And it was, you know, from Italy, lots of quick passing, none of it moving the play forward. And there was one sequence that ended, pass, 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 Insigne right. shot from 40 yards out. At the end of the half, lots of horizontal passing, pass, pass, nothing threatening, ends with a shot from Benucci from 40 yards out. England were were making that happen. Um, so, you know, like I said, in the end, this game will be remembered for them kind of giving it away by not going for it. But for one half of football, what they set out to do worked beautifully. The problem was in the second half, Italy made adjustments and England did not. Yes, that is absolutely it. So so if you look at what happened was and um, people said he's gone conservative again, he's playing uh, uh, Trippier, he's playing Shaw. So he's effectively playing how many defenders like, you know, five defenders plus two defensive midfielders. That's negative. Not really, though. It's not really. Kane was dropping into midfield and they were finding ways to get around. Like we thought Emerson would be the problem. And he was. I thought he had a poor first half. He didn't look good at all. And he struggled with, with Trippier. But so did Di Lorenzo. So why stop that, Andrew? What is the sense in stopping that? Stop like, what? Bombing your fullbacks forward? Getting them forward. Yeah. Keeping them on the back foot. And like Italy didn't do anything where I saw where I thought, oh, that was very good until like 34 minutes when um, Chiesa decides, all right, I got to do something. And he spins rice. He leaves rice in his wake and he fires a shot, which I don't know. Pickford seemed to think he had it covered. Maybe he did, but it flew past the post. But that was it. Yeah. And how did that half end? Bonucci firing a rocket from from like 60 yards over the right. into the crowd. Right. So, um. Yeah, there was nothing from Italy. And, and you're right. It, that's, I suppose this is the point. Is that not the time to make substitutions? Because Mancini didn't wait. Like, he didn't really wait. He waited a few minutes into the second half, and then he decides to make a few changes. You know, he just, he, 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 like, if you look for it, uh, it was 53 minutes. Barella comes out, Cristante comes in, immobile off for Berardi. You know, he, he decides we need to, to change this. And, and Gareth, waited, Gareth waited until the 70th to oh, make his first change. Would you not have made a change like early, maybe like feel out the first 10 minutes and then say, 
look, they're getting into the game a bit. Get Grealish on. Get Sancho on. Definitely. They didn't like when Grealish came on. They didn't like it at all. But it wasn't enough, and it was too late almost. It was the, interesting. The, the... Grealish came on and immediately did all the Jack Grealish things. Fouled right. repeatedly. You know, w- was dangerous in the box. So there was a period of play where I was watching and thinking, this is going to end with him drawing a penalty. He had the back heel that put Saka in. Uh, late, I think that was later on in the game. And Saka and played it out, yeah. Yeah, it came off him pretty quick. But at least they were, you know, that that was a positive substitution. But and, and, and England's pattern has been, at least against the good opposition, the Croatians and the Germanys, to tenderize the opposition and then bring on the, the closers, the guys who can really hurt you. And, um, and he made those substitutions after Bonucci bundled over the line for Italy. Right. Um, and in talking about the adjustments that were made, I, I saw this tweet, which I thought was interesting, from Konstantin Eckner, a, a football journalist. Uh, he tweeted, Roberto Mancini's tactical change up front was genius. England center backs are better when they can focus on a particular striker. Spain's structure versus Italy might be the inspiration. He's talking about after Immobile was brought off uh, right. when he was taken out in the second half. And that, uh, you know, that, that did change the game. Italy felt more dangerous after that. It felt like they had more weapons on the field after that. And England felt far more on the back foot after that substitution was made. We have a, we have a tweet here from a listener that's kind of prescient and it's on the point. Uh, the caution from England was baffling and it permeate, permeates the entire squad. Playing to defend a 1-0 lead for 88 minutes. Well, not 88, but I know what you mean. Give me a break. You're not facing Pirlo and Zaghi Del Piero or Totti in attack. This was your moment. Seize it. Be bold. Um, I think you're being unfair to the Italian attack, but I would say that the larger point does stand there. That's from Scott Rasmussen. Um, why not, you know, you're at home in front of your home crowd. Why not do the things it's, you know, when, when Italy look discombobulated, they look out of it, go and lance them, go and finish this in front of your home crowd. No, not good enough from Gareth. It's going to be, it's going to be so interesting, JJ, how this run for England is remembered because essentially what did, what did Gareth Southgate do today? He essentially did the things that got them to this point. They didn't Correct. really, they didn't really change today. This no. is, you know, they, they kind of came in with the mentality. I, I know that they fluctuated between back four and back five, and they even fluctuated within today as well in a back four, back five, but like, you know, this was their style all throughout the tournament and it worked. It got them to this point, but it didn't work today. And I just wonder, will it now be reflected upon as, you know, a failure by him because um, he didn't, so because he didn't in the final game after the previous six doing the thing that worked, he didn't do it differently in the seventh. I, I think in, in the cold analysis, the, the question marks over Southgate going into the tournament, the questions after the Croatia game and the questions after the, the uh, Scotland game will now come into sharp focus. Is this a manager who has a paucity of ideas, who has only one way to play? And with the talents in front of him, the, like the question was, what will he do with all these great players? How will he integrate them into the squad? And the the little rotations, the little changes he would make where he'd get, you know, 15, 20 minutes out of Grealish or he'd start Sancho against Ukraine. So far, so good. But on the in the biggest moment, he'll be looked at as not using his resources correctly. I, I think that will be the cold analysis. Now, the other thing is to remember is part of the 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 changing of the culture around the English team was to change how the English team interacted with the media. So right the way through this tournament, they were still having darts games, but like Henry Winter was tweeting videos of him playing 
uh, Declan Rice in, in darts. So there is this bonhomie, there's this good spirit, this era of good feelings, as you say, between the English media and Gareth Southgate's team. And I wonder how they'll frame that tomorrow, considering the access they've got, considering the good feelings. Do the English media want to blow this up and go after Gareth Southgate and this team? I think both can happen. I think you can be critical of the manager in a way that is fair and in a way that 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 reflects fondly upon which has run. been the hallmark of english tabloids for years <laughs> i guess well, yeah I, I can't argue with that they but they don't have the same power they used to have like the daily mail the sun the star the mirror they don't have the same power they have but it will be interesting to see how, how they react we know how the bbc is going to react i watched the bbc preview andrew uh i i would say they spent ooh, 90 seconds talking about italy uh, 90 seconds of analysis from Messrs. Lineker, uh, Lampard, but, uh, Shearer. But that's a broadcast Rio. going out to the English people. That's what mm. their audience wants to hear. Public service broadcasting is to inform as well, Andrew. Would License you stop? Get up your high horse, you bum. Broadcast, broadcasting is to inform. They could have at least uh, let the English people know what they were in for from the, the boys in blue. It's funny though, because Southgate. Look, ultimately, like you said, it's this is not going to be remembered fondly. This this game in particular, but like he did get things, some things right as well. Like the the criticism beforehand was, oh, they've gone back to the back five. Here comes Trippier again. Well, two minutes in, it was Trippier who was a huge part of the goal and, and it was a part of their attacking moves in the following minutes after that as well. Yeah, I know, Andrew, but the game but the game is played across ninety minutes, and in this case, one hundred and twenty. And I just don't get if this is working. Like, is it a case that? England can't play at that intensity for longer than 20, 25 minutes. Uh, it can't be I, that. It can't be that. Um, Unless he thinks, I mean, look, we've been sitting here talking a lot about how good the English defense is coming out of this tournament looking. Stones, Maguire, Kyle Walker, you know, they, they all had great tournaments. You know, maybe that's maybe that's partially because Southgate put them in the right positions to have good tournaments. He, he didn't leave yeah. them in positions where they were going to be exposed. He kept that shielding duo of, of Phillips and Declan Rice in front of them. Um, so, look, ultimately, I think that those guys are, are really good players. And I don't know that they needed that help right. in a good tournament, but Southgate ensured that they weren't going to be exposed at the back. And, um, you know, it, yeah. it worked well enough to get them here, but I, this was a bridge too far. I suppose um, I, I made some notes and it's interesting on, on the 66 minute goal, Benucci, you know, bundles home from the corner. I, I asked the question, could Pickford have done better on that? But I mean, I feel as if I could be asking that question all tournament with Pickford. But what was interesting was from the 66 minute to like the 77 minutes on, on 77 minutes an English, the England win a free kick, I write, which breaks the Italian siege. Like the Italians smelled blood after that went in. The, the boost that that gave. Okay, it was an ugly goal. It wasn't the finest goal they've ever scored in this tournament. But, you know, it was a goal and it breathed new life into them. And England were struggling. There was 11 minutes from the goal of total Italian pressure and possession of the ball. And here we are, Andrew. Here we are with all these skillful players that England have playing in the top leagues at the top clubs. And what, what is tweeted out by um, Adam Crafton, our friend uh, from The Athletic, who's been on the podcast, I would kill for someone in midfield who could set the tempo like Verratti. You know, England are still in that. We're not going to possess the ball for long, long periods. Even with Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice there, we're told how good they are for their club teams in the Premier League, how they, how they can move the ball, progress the ball. Still, Italy, out, an out-of-sorts Italy, will still dominate the ball more than this new look England. 
So we're not yeah. created. We're not creative enough. We're not positive enough. Oh, wow. That's you've unfair. Gone, what you've done there is brilliant because you've gone and taken this thing and used it <laughs> against them. It's very, very clever. What a verbal device I've used. Here's the thing that more than anything else that I want to give Italy credit for. Um, well, I, I guess we'll use this as an opportunity to go a little deeper into Italy, this game and the broader picture with them. Um, in this game, what they did in the second half in terms of winning possession back instantaneously, it just sucked the life out of England. It sucked the life out of the energy in that building that the fans were trying to breathe into their team. England could not get any foothold in the second half. Now, we, we've we sat here for the first 15, 20 minutes of this podcast and talked about Southgate and how he set them up, uh, and that's part of the problem. Um, but Italy also did it to them. Uh, their their insistence and relentlessness every time they gave away possession to get it right back. I mean, I'd be curious. I haven't seen possession breakdowns half by half, but what would you guess it was in the second half? 90-10? Yeah, it, I mean, 15? it was... It, and, well, like I, like I said, there was just such long periods of... I mean, 85 per... 80%, let's be conservative. 80% would not would not shock me in the least. No, from, not from, at all. From the Italians. But, the, but there was also as well, you know, again... I, I don't want to say that New Italy doesn't exist. It does exist. But you, you spoke about Bonucci and Chiellini. Like, these characteristics, like, what happens when these guys go? Like, for me, that is, that is it's unbelievable. Uh, they weren't weak points tonight. There was a, the moment five minutes into extra time where there was a misplaced pass in midfield and Sterling is in. England get it back and Sterling is in. And it was like the first chance England sniff a goal England had had in, in forever. Mm -hmm. And who comes across with this unbelievable clean covering tackle? Chiellini. Love defending. Love life like Chiellini loves defending was a tweet I saw tonight. And it's absolutely 100% true. He was buzzing before the game. He was buzzing during the game. Didn't look like he was buzzing for penalties, but so what? He lost the toss. Um, but Andrew, you know... Cher cherish them guys all my italian friends out there cherish them because you aren't replacing these guys nobody is made like these guys anymore yeah i wonder what they have left like can they be the partnership I, I, for the for the world cup i think i think uh, i think they could be Benucci, I think, they, I, I think is 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 i mean obviously their their age difference chiellini's 36 Benucci's 34 yeah. So that alone tells you that Benucci has a better chance. But also, Benucci recovered in tournament from a little hamstring niggle. Like, if if this guy truly is as, as made of, of of teak or oak or some kind of non-human substance, maybe he can go a little bit longer. And also, it's what? He'll have one full club season and then a few months because it's a Christmas World Cup. So it's not like, it's not going to be two entire seasons of club football before they play. So maybe, maybe there's a way they can manage their minutes. I mean, those guys aren't going to play every minutes for their club anyway, I would think going forward. So, mm -hmm. and haven't been so, but I maybe don't, they'll go the Gareth Bale route. <laughs> yeah. The Abby Wambach patented route for tournaments, but, um, you've got to give credit to Mancini for what he's done, Andrew, like to have this vision of this team to set out and play a certain style of football. Now, did they play it all the way through the knockout tournaments? No, because Spain didn't allow them to an extent. England didn't allow them for at least the first half of that, of that final. But like what we saw in the group was joyous. Even the goal like Chiesa scored against Austria when they were on the rack and they needed to find some inspiration in the round of 16 game was amazing. Like, 
Italy have been the best team in this tournament overall throughout from all different facets of, of what we consider to be the best of football. I think you're right. Even though it seemed like they changed a little bit from the group stage into the knockout stage of this tournament. Overall, I do agree with you. I, I think we're, I think we're exiting this tournament feeling fairly good about the idea of the best team winning. You know, this didn't feel like a fluke in any way that Italy it did, come out of it this. It didn't. It really and, you know, didn't. And one thing, I'm glad you brought up Mancini. One thing I wanted to give him credit for. So I saw a stat today. Um, I saw this in the first half. So let me, I'm going to adjust the math on the fly because it extended in the second half. But during their 33 match unbeaten run heading into this game, um, Italy had trailed over the course of those 33 matches unbeaten. They had trailed for a total of 44 minutes. And Italy trailed tonight for what, 66? Benucci scored in the 67th yeah. minute. So that to me is interesting because as I saw, I saw that stat at halftime and I was thinking a little bit more about it. And I was kind of thinking to myself on the heels of a first half, remember, put yourself back in the mindset of what you were thinking at halftime. England grabbed the lead. Italy generated absolutely nothing except wild shots from 40 yards out. And so I started to kind of think to myself, you see a stat like that 33 games and they trailed for 44 minutes total across the last 33 games that they've played. They're not in this position ever, this recent iteration of Italy. They don't know yet what it is to be trailing, especially trailing in a game of such magnitude. And so I started to almost think maybe they're, maybe they're cooked. You know, maybe they just don't know how to play from behind because it's been such a long time when they've been asked to do that. And that's why I give Mancini credit because he knew how to come back in this game. He knew how to turn the screws up on England and just press them and get possession back. Yeah. So I, I give him credit for that. And I, and I do, I, like I said, the substitutions, when, when I, when I heard Brian Cristante was coming on, I was like, all right, I've never been a huge fan of Bernadeschi, but uh, Berardi, I liked Locatelli. I've loved, but I felt like they'd been sidelined by the, the returns or the, the changes in formation that had happened, particularly with uh, Verratti coming back into the side for Locatelli. And he got a note out of them. He got something out of them. Like we all talked about how the, how the bench was going to be the difference. England would have a better bench than Italy. But as it turned out, Italy had guys who were tuned in to what needed to be done and could execute. Um, it, do you know what, Andrew? It was a classic final, though, wasn't it really? Like not a classic as in, oh, man, what a game, but a classic final. Can you can you give your I feel like this analysis is is steamrolling towards some sort of Ron manager analysis of, of football what a classic isn't it? final of what a classic final is. I wish I wish we had our drops tonight. Football, isn't it? Jump us for goalposts. Five v five in the park. Oh, watch out! Ball's gone into the hedge. Oh, um, no, it was uh, football. Isn't it? Cla are... Classic final, huh? KG back and forth. Not much. Not much attack. Not much attack. Yeah, penalties. Oh, look at Collini. He's big. He's Italian. Round the neck on Sacco. Could have been a red, <laughs> isn't it? Um, <laughs> that would be the Ron manager, uh, uh, you know, take on the game. But 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 finals are so tense. They're turgid. They're terse. They're they're not terse. That means they're short. JJ, stop using words you don't know anything about. It's late, guys. I'm not going to lie. Um, but but this was sweaty, you know. Um, Bellotti licking his lips before the because his mouth was completely dry from dehydration from running around probably but also from nerves this was vintage final um and italy oh do i want to say this do oh. i want to do this to you to me Mourinho's word heritage this is this is the history of the england 
Italy have that heritage, don't they, though? I mean, they know how to win finals. They know how to win knockout games. Look, the facts are what they are. England hadn't been in a final since 1966. Like, right. It is, in fact, the history of the England. And by the way, Italy stayed at uh, Tottenham's training ground uh, in the build-up to this. So this maybe this is some, the history maybe of the Tottenham will now maybe be, uh, be changed um, forever. Maybe, maybe some of that historical juice rubs off. Um, on uh, on Tottenham, <laughs> one other um, guy. One other guy I wanted to mention here before we. There are a couple other things about this final that don't really have to do with the game that I wanted to mention. But um, it, it's interesting, JJ, because Jean Luigi Donnarumma had nothing to do essentially from the second minute onward in this game. Like Luke Shaw had the attempt, he scored, and there wasn't much after that that brought the keeper into play for them. Um, even no. Pickford, I mean, I, like Pickford didn't have much to do. He had one great save when he went diving to his left uh, in the no, second but, half. But that was the first time, that was in the, early in the second half. He, uh, yeah. it was in the, uh, I don't he, remember when, it was in the second half. 50s, in the 50s, I think it was. And it was the first time he went full length uh, and he saved from Chiesa. That was a, a, a very good attempt from Chiesa. His classic little cut inside and whip a shot out. Yeah, but, um, I, but I bring up Donnarumma just because, you know, he didn't do much for 120 minutes. And you just watch him in penalties. Now, I know he got fortunate, obviously, with the Rashford miss. He went the wrong way, and that just hit off the butt of the post. But, God, he's an imposing figure in that net. He's massive. He's enormous. Um, and he's also agile. Yeah. You know, big guys, we, we tend to not think of them in that way. He's also been around for so long that when you see he comes up, he's like 22. You're like, what? How is he still so young? He looks like he's 33. Um, he's very, very... He's very, very good. I had some bad takes on him. I've had some terrible takes on him that I haven't shared on the podcast. Like I, I blamed him for the um, Alpine Crouchy's goal, uh, which made things nervous against Austria, where he stoops to head it and it flies up into the net. I blamed him for that. That was kind of unfair. Um, he's, he's brilliant and he's so calm at penalties. Can you yeah. imagine though walking toward him? Right, that's what I'm saying. That's why I use the word imposing. Yeah. There's a mountain of a man in there. He's, he's he's really quite like when him and... when him and Pickford went to kind of high five each other before the penalties. <laughs> I was like, those guys play the same position. <laughs> yeah, it's not fair. It's really unbelievable. Um, yeah. yeah, what a what a what a crazy night. There is um, I I won't lie to you. There's a lot of relief in Ireland right now. A lot so the, of relief. This was one thing I wanted to bring up, and this will kind of work us into the fan element of this. So throughout this tournament, I. Obviously, you and I talk all the time. Um, I've been listening to other podcasts. I've reading. I've been reading things. I see things on Twitter. I don't think I ever grasped fully until the past week just how much England are despised outside of England. I think here in the United States, we're shielded from some of that because maybe I don't know if it's because the Premier League is so popular here that it almost bleeds into fans kind of holding England in with a, a special spot in their heart, maybe? I mean, it does. I was pretty critical of them last week on the podcast, but it probably stands to reason, really, when I put I mean, away my so, own prejudices. So, so here in the U.S., I feel like you don't really get much of that. Um, but all of a sudden, I feel like this, this has come a little bit out of the woodwork because England are now going places that we haven't seen them go in decades. And so it's brought out, like, the English hate uh, from a lot of fans out there that I didn't, I didn't know 
really existed. Even from you, I always know, you know, that you root against them. I always knew that. Um, but I feel like you, you turned it up a notch in the last two weeks. Yeah, because we we were facing the the appalling vista of England winning something. Because can all you, my can you take us through? So I'm not saying you're wrong for feeling this way. Hell, hmm. I, I have plenty of teams that I passionately root against. So I get it. Like that's not sports fans do this. Can you just tell us where this is generated from? Um, it's it's probably multifaceted. I think the first thing is that um, we in Ireland and Scotland and Wales have. English-based media, free-to-air channels. So we have BBC, ITV, Channel 4, and we have all the... We've grown up when the tabloids mattered. We had all the English tabloids, all the English TV shows, all the English news shows. Mm -hmm. And there was always this sense of England being positioned as centre of the universe, um, as almost still this powerful empire. And they were the only thing worth talking about. And there was... um, an arrogance, a supreme arrogance, and that other countries were looked down upon and that England had almost, in a football sense, this right to be at a tournament and this, this history and heritage that means they should brush aside Algeria, brush aside in, uh, the United States. I mean, we, we remember what, what... Look, we heard it a little bit with Rio Ferdinand about Italy. Yeah, that's one part of it. So the media is the part. part. The second part of it is we grew up with English violence. English football hooligan violence, and we never wanted anything for their supporters. That's the second part. And um, they ripped up, you know, Euro 2000. Go back and watch the footage where they just ripped up towns in Belgium, um, far right supporters, extremist supporters, Chelsea headhunters on tour, um, just nasty, nasty things. Um, an obsession with World War II, singing about the IRA. They just they they got a, a, a game abandoned in 1995, a year before Euro 96. They played a friendly in Ireland, the first Irish-England game in a few years, and they got the game abandoned um, by trashing and rioting. And that, was a, that is the real centre. And some of the behaviour you saw prior to the game tonight by England fans congregating together, uh, there was reports by more than... I, I saw loads of reports, There's more than a few outlets. Saying we've, seen about, the, we've seen the videos. We've seen the videos about bottles being thrown. Yeah. Um, all that stuff, but the fans and the fan England on tour, um, that that goes over terribly in Ireland. It goes over terribly around the world. Anywhere they've visited, their fans have left a trail of destruction. Those are facts. I don't want to hear about the small minority. Uh, I know some of its lagger out behavior are not organized extremism like it was in the past, like Combat 18 and these far right groups, but English fans do not have a good reputation traveling to watch the international team. And the third thing is, Andrew, um, which is a syndrome, a post-colonial syndrome. They are our old overlord and quite recent in this case. Well, now you're talking about yourself. You're talking about yeah. Ireland now specifically. Yeah, and other countries too. I mean, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. you know, there's, there's very few. Uh, there was a point where the sun never set on their empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that there's no it's funny, point. though, those feelings have disintegrated here in the United States. Well, they have. Yes, uh, I, I was I was uh, there was some very sage uh, Twitter uh, followers of ours telling us, well, of course, we follow England because of the special relationship. Which what, was between uh, the US and, and Great Britain. Yeah, which goes into, um, well, we know what goes into wars, etc. Um, all those components come together uh, to to foment to to foment this. This feeling, um, 
but I, I, I think the main part is we don't want these fans to have any success because we'll never hear the end of it. Yeah, I think any fan can relate to that. We all have a team that we feel that way about and, and an opposing fan base that we feel that way about. So I, I totally get that. The first point you mentioned is interesting to me about their broadcast channels being shown in your country and you yes. therefore being exposed to well, the, the rah-rah. Modric had the Modric has been consuming this content too when he when he was in England and when he was abroad. Modric has a absolute bee in his bonnet about the English media and the way they they talked about Croatia mm-hmm. at the last World Cup. He's still talking about it. Yeah, yeah. That that one's interesting to me because I I, I do wonder is that a symptom of their arrogance? Is that a symptom of you know like like for example, it's is it their fault? Like so, their audience is in English. They're broadcasting what they believe to in English is an English audience. So, like, they're kind of almost feeding the people a rah rah go team at like sort of broadcast. I, I almost wonder, like, like if the Dallas Cowboys, if like Dallas media was being shown in Philadelphia, like, I would expect Dallas Cowboy people to talk that way. And I would certainly, mm-hmm. if it were being shown in Philadelphia, I'd say, get like, why is this on here? Get this right. off my my tele. Like, should that be shown? Like, should English rah rah go team type broadcast be shown in in these other countries? Um, like, what are the shows that you, that you're talking about where you see it? Is it just like BBC Match of the Day? Match of the Day often. Um, the the pregame tonight was was a love fest. And, and, and I, I do expect them to talk up the game. They're the British Broadcasting Corporation. But, you know, in, inherent in the B there is Wales, England, Northern Ireland. And they know they're getting broadcast to the Republic of Ireland via several different outlets. Yeah. And it's not that they shouldn't try and talk their team up. It's, it's the dismissiveness, Andrew. Okay. You know, in, in, and, and the recreation of, of a past as... Um, as Dion Fanning wrote this weekend in a brilliant article, which I've tweeted out about the rise, the fall and rise of English football and on the international stage, the, the, the reimagining of several different Albions. Like I told you, they won in 66, they went to a quarterfinal in 70, and then they didn't qualify for anything. And, you know, even football's coming home, which is a, a fairly, you know, um, lighthearted, lighthearted, almost satirical. Well, it was two comedians that did it. Has been taken on by people to say, "Yeah, it's coming home. It's ours. We gave it to you." And so there's the the last remnants in people's minds of a of a powerful England, a strong Albion that rules the waves and and conquers small countries and is just number one and has a supremacy. And that's bled into their football, you know, where they when they sing about two world wars and one world cup, you know, I didn't want them to, you know, have to make the awkward lyrical change, two world wars and one world cup and one European championship. It would have been difficult. But um, like, for example, when, when, um, when, when the World Cup in 2010, the groups were drawn. What Easy, was it? Right? Easy. England, Algeria. States. Uh, States. Yeah. Uh, no, what was oh, it? Yeah, it was, yeah, the Y was the Y Yanks. Um, why was Yanks? Yeah. What was the Slovenia? S? Slovenia was the S. Right. Easy. Easy. That kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, on the back page of the mirror just last week, they had England to fit. It's, it, 
they they had written it's Italy prior to the England Denmark game. England to face Italy in final, and then this tiny asterisk saying after we beat Denmark. Right. This this kind of stuff um, rammed down our neck. So that's your perspective from the from the rest of the world. One thing I'm curious about: look, you saw the way that both in 2018 and certainly now with this run to Wembley and a final, the English fan base. Like for for the what would you say for the first we started this podcast in 2014 for the first four years of this podcast I feel like oftentimes the perspective that I felt from English fans was that this is nonsense that's getting in the way of me consuming my club football <laughs> and I wonder now because of the again I'm talking from an English fan perspective not from a JJ Devaney perspective mm. the likability factor of this team. It seems like fans love every single one of these players that's on this team. I feel like there's you know, the fact that this team has, has experienced success. I do mm. wonder if the tide is turning uh, on, on that. If internationals, you know, if World Cup qualifiers, games like that, even against you know lower opposition, if it will be embraced in a different way um, because of the connection the fans have have made with this group, if it'll be embraced differently than what it was prior. I think it's been embraced differently since Russia in 2018. I think there's been a general wave of interest and um, and joy. And, and watching England has been, I wouldn't say always easier because they don't play necessarily the style of football that um, one would expect with the players at their disposal. But it's been much more joyous, much more joyous. And, um, and look, I, I should say this as well about like, like I don't hate England. I love English football. I love English people. I listen to English music. You're you're obsessed with an English club. Right. Um, I tweeted today, uh, you know, I said, hands down, truly one of the great football songs. And I I tweeted the live version of New Order. Love's got the world in motion. I mean, I've sang the lyrics to that. I'm unashamedly, I'll have that on in the car. I I love... No, but I do want... I do... I, I don't want to be seen as some kind of guy who's bashing them over the head all the time um i i love the history of england at major tournaments there's it's shakespearean it's unbelievable some of the stories you know um but i want them to lose right look you don't like i understand why you feel like you need to explain yourself because it, it's a little bit vitriolic at times which mm. can be scary um but like we all we all know it jj every american fan listening to this hates the mexican national team we don't hate mexico right right you know i hate the new york giants i don't hate new york i love new york as a city i've lived here for a long time it's a great place about you old hatchet andy (laughs) so look we get it it's sports man yeah i just want to make i just want to make sure because i know we've got english listeners and i do i do love them dearly and they're some of the best to interact with on on Twitter and um, they enjoy the podcast. So I just want them to know that, that no, I um, get it. And, and also in the last few days, I've last 24 hours, actually, I, re- I reflected on things and I love the people who listen to podcasts know I love the history of English football. And I was terribly sad to hear about the passing of our colleague, um, Paul Mariner, mm-hmm. who was just the embodiment of a wonderful Englishman, uh, a great player and someone who, who was greatly loved by everyone at ESPN FC. And, um, and so, you know, there, I have a lot of love for English football and, and English things and English people. Of course, of course. Um, the, the last bit I wanted to mention on this, the fans in particular. Yeah. Boy, they were, 
they were raring to go before this one. I mean, you you touched oh, on buddy. it. We've seen the videos now of fans storming certain gates. Uh, fans that, that was we, some some of that was scary. Yeah, fans that we presume uh, don't have didn't have tickets to this. And so I was thinking about it from a, a couple perspectives. One, like first and foremost, simply don't do it. Like, what are you doing? This is madness. What you're trying to attempt to do here. Um, like I, I saw, I saw a tweet. Um, I forget who it was from. Uh, I, I, I'll go back and find it. But uh, the tweet was just seen another fan jump down a 20 foot plus wall to try to get into the inner court and near the media entrance. He's telling the stewards escorting him away. He had his ticket stolen. You don't get this for a November World Cup qualifier against Bulgaria. Like the, the fans clearly were ready for this or excited about this in a way that like is not normal. And, no, and. I'll tell you what's norm, not normal is the planning. Now, I like an eight I love an eight o'clock kickoff. I actually really do like it. Big um, games meant to be played at night. I've yeah. Always felt that way. But uh, we're going to allow a pretty much full Wembley. Okay, sounds good. Uh, after a pandemic where people have been locked up for a long time, for the biggest game in the history of English football, and we're allowing an opportunity for people to drink all day. That that would that would like at a category one of the the top tier category games in in England like the Merseyside Derby something like that that wouldn't happen it just wouldn't happen the North London Derby is always like the seven thirty a.m. kickoff here in New York I'm like come yeah. on can't we like make it a little later uh, there, there there is really good reasons for that and yeah. uh, I think we saw some of them on display tonight the the tweet I read by the way was it was Sam Wallace uh, chief football writer for the Daily. Uh, and Sunday Telegraph newspapers. He was uh, he was there on the scene, as many journalists were that witnessed this and took video of it. I mean, it can all be seen. It was it was pretty wild. Uh, some of the footage before this game, and and I was thinking about that. Okay, so let's say you've done that now. You're in the stadium for this game. You don't have a ticket. Like this is for a lot of English fans. This is the biggest game they've ever seen in their entire lives. That's how you want to consume it. Like I know me, I'd be terrified every section that I try to go into to get a seat. Like, I know I'm in here. I shouldn't be. The police are probably looking for me. There's probably footage of me. Like, I'd be terrified. I wouldn't enjoy any of the game. Every time you go into a section and the steward says, okay, let me see your ticket. I'll show you to your seat. What do you have to do? Run away and run to another section before they can catch? Like, is that how you want to take this in as a fan? That sounds terrible to me. I don't get it. Yeah, neither do I, to be honest with you. Can I give you the guest list from tonight? Yeah, of The course. list of uh, dignitaries, just quickly. Um, so I won't go through all the, the notable guests as it's written down, um, tweeted by Miguel Delaney, but, um, you know, Alexander Seferin was there, um, you know, FIFA president Gianni Infantino, the Duke of Cambridge, the mayor of London, Boris Johnson was there. Okay, let's go to the other list. So you have David Beckham. Okay. Wayne Rooney. Makes sense. Robbie Keane. A little bit out there, but has scored more international goals than anyone on the field that played tonight. Very good. So Jeff Hurst, hero of 66. Fabio Capello managed both, uh, managed in Italy and and um, obviously managed England, the national team. Maurizio Pochettino. Hmm. Okay. Alessandro Nesta. All right. Gianluca Zambrata, hero of 06. Tom Cruise. <laughs> I saw England score and he fist bumped David Beckham. Right. Bex. Nice goal. And um, Kate Moss, just Kate Moss right there. All right. I'm good okay. with all that. 
Look, it's a major sporting. We could do this at the Super Bowl and probably go through a thousand people that you know don't it's have just, direct ties. It's yeah, it's just funny. Like uh, I don't know, I have just a, I have just a vision of Fabio Capello and Tom Cruise just having the most awkward conversation. You know, when they go to get uh, uh, cocktail sausages at halftime. And uh, Tom Cruise is just there standing in it. Fabio, you know, really energetic and just <laughs> soccer, <laughs> soccer man, soccer man. I'm in love. I'm in love with soccer. All right. Yeah. Um, let's see, JJ, we're going to do another podcast on Tuesday. Cause I, I had a section here of like most memorable mom- moments from the tournament. I'm wondering if we almost want to like ref- use Tuesday's podcast as more of like a reflective, what we just watched over the last month type of deal. I think, I think that's a nice idea. We can, uh, we can put it in amongst all the transfer rumors with that one that we washing over our bodies. Don't be like that, JJ. We are in for a month. The U S plays in. It's 7.45 where I am right now. So the right. U.S., let's see, on on the website, it says kickoff is at 8.30, which means it's probably about a 9.55 kickoff. So we're we're like two hours away from kickoff of the U.S.'s march to a, a hopefully gold comp triumph. So we'll be talking a lot about that on Tuesday. We're not going to be doing an emergency podcast for that tonight. This is kind of the podcast for today. Um, but let's see we'll kind of unless you have anything uh, anything else that you wanted to get out now on the euro final we'll save the rest of it for tuesday and we'll move to a uh, copa america no I, I just saw this tweet from about 45 minutes ago from uh henry winter uh jaden sancho uh Bukaya saka and marcus rashford being racially abused on social media oh. Oh. This is what this is why England players will continue to take a knee. Also, Twitter and Instagram have to be quicker and stronger to stop these hate crimes on their platforms. Henry Winter. So <clears throat> that was a major fear when I saw the the um, the, the players who missed the penalties. Oh man, and, that um, that makes you sick because you know you saw those all three of those guys in tears on the field after the game. Like they need that on top of whatever they're, whatever they're feeling from themselves after a night like this, like professionally, this might be the worst night of their lives. And they got to go like from the people who, who they presumably think are supporting them. They got to go and see that. I mean, it's like, God, I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to end sickening. our conversation, no, our conversation no. like that, but I could not note it. I could not say it because we got to confront this. It's, um, it's terrible. Oh, I hate that. I, and I feel I feel awful for those guys. Um, yeah, I, I really do. Uh, so yes, we will talk more about the European Championships because God, this was this wound up being such a fun tournament. Um, and so we'll we'll give it a kind of a little bit of a retrospective on uh, on Tuesday for our our week weekly podcast. Uh, but JJ, good. before we get out, obviously we have to talk about Copa America as well. Uh, Argentina, they do it for the first time since 1993. Uh, they win Copa America and they do it at the Maracanã, no less. My God, what what an occasion for Lionel Messi to finally do it, to finally be able to put a check in that box for Argentina. You could see on his face when that final whistle blew and he dropped to his knees, his teammates swarmed him. Like there was no hiding from what the story was here. And it was this player who has, you know, along with Cristiano Ronaldo, who has owned a generation, uh, finally getting to lift that weight off his shoulders and getting to win that trophy for his native country. You could just, you could feel what it meant to him 
and his teammates knew it as well. It's why they swarmed him at full time. He wasn't the best player out there tonight. He didn't, I didn't no. or last night. I didn't think he had, he was by his standards. He was somewhat quiet. Now he was the best player, I think across the tournament. Yes. He had an excellent tournament. Um, but in the end, it was a lot of, you know, it, it was almost a, a, a fitting conclusion to this chapter of Messi not having the trophy because so much of the story for him over all these years has been, it's all messy. Where's the help? You know, all these great players who are Argentinian, why aren't they stepping up in these major tournaments the way he seems to? It's always him carrying them. And in the end, to a certain extent, it was a lot of those guys, you know, Angel Di Maria, um, you know, guys like that who stepped up and wound up being the difference for Argentina to lift that trophy. I, I think that's the crucial point. I know it was a mistake uh, by Lodi, the fullback at Brazil. Um, it was a good driven ball, but he should have intercepted it. But what a great finish by Angel Di Maria. So cool to control it, lift it over the goalkeeper into the back of the net. And it was nice that Messi could look around and have help. You know, it didn't have to all be him. And his joy when he lifted that trophy. Like, there's some great pictures of him just smiling, just beaming. Um and now, uh, I think it was Gavin Cooney of the 42.ie, he tweeted, um, so delighted to see Messi finally win a trophy with Argentina. Now let's never speak of it again. <laughs> and it's so true. It's like a relief for all of us who've enjoyed watching him play to see him do that. It just, it felt great. Um, that whole tournament, just, you know, there was some enjoyable games, there's no question, but the fact that there was no crowds was... I mean, yeah, they, it was at least, they at least I'm had glad a, small, got... a small crowd for the final. Yeah, you're right. And very, I mean, very small, but like, still. I was against, I was against it being played and I felt as if it just wasn't wise considering the, the pretty dreadful COVID um, death numbers in Brazil um, that are, I haven't checked on them lately, but that were certainly there at the start of the tournament. Um, but not, not that, you know, not that it was a good thing it was played, but it was a good thing that Messi got his trophy and um and that argentina won uh that yeah. was special that was really special and, and neymar's prediction was not good <laughs> be like we said be careful what you wish for exactly uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about neymar but staying with messi for a sec um you know it's just funny man because i th i think in the end we have to look at this just as a feel-good moment for him to me this is a validation of nothing this changes zero in terms right. of how I perceive him as a player, uh, it changes nothing. I thought he was the greatest player I've ever seen before that game. I think he's the greatest player I've ever seen after that game. Um, for me, it is. It, it solely was about just like a, a feel-good moment for him to finally be able to experience that feeling for his country. And I wonder if he could line up all the trophies he's won in order of their importance to him. Boy, I... I wonder how high this one ranks. I bet it's, I bet it is really high, like right near the top potentially. I think it's right up there. And um, you, you were talking about England and the connection to the fans. This, this will do a lot for, for that connection between Messi and, and people in Argentina. I really do think that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, look, I think, I think some of that people had come around on, like they showed, I saw a photo before the match of, uh, I forget what building it was in Buenos Aires, but like it was lit up with just a gigantic photograph of Messi superimposed on the side of this massive building. Uh, like, I do think that he is a God there. Um, you know, maybe there's frustration after tournament disappointments uh, from fans that he couldn't do more. I think I get that. I think that's natural. I don't always know that that necessarily means 
um, that they don't like him or they don't view I'm him not, as one of no, theirs. No, no, I know you're not it, saying that. I, I'm just I'm not that's, that. that's a narrative that we hear from time to time. Sure. sure. They think he's Spain's, he's Barcelona's. Um, you're right. Maybe there are some people that, that this will change. Um, but I just so, think of him and, and like, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. I saw it was tweeted out by ESPN FC's account, but after the 2016 Copa America and the disappointment of that and how he basically, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of, I can't do this anymore. It, it's that's four finals. Uh, it's just not meant for me. And he, and he stepped away from Argentina internationally. He just couldn't, the, whether it be just like the weight of it all, he could no longer bear. And so thinking back to that five years ago and seeing the, his reaction um, and the celebrations at the end of that game last night, it was just, it was a great scene for anyone who loves this sport, who I suppose isn't Brazilian because obviously their fan base wouldn't enjoy it. Although oddly enough, it was referenced repeatedly throughout the broadcast um, on FS1 where the guys were talking about there being like Brazilian fans who wanted to see Messi win. And I'm going to just like, I like John Strong and Stu Holden. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to believe them. Although it's impossible for me to believe that. But uh, not in a, in a country like Brazil. I'm sure, <laughs> right? I'm sure there's plenty of Brazilians appreciate what Messi is, but that is going too far. I don't, hey, that's I'm, what I thought. I'm not buying that. I, I like to know what Brazilians they were talking to. Yeah, I thought similarly. Mm. Um, so props to Messi. Uh, he, he shared the golden ball for this tournament. I believe it was him and Neymar that um, both took home the honors. Fittingly, they, both. they are good friends. So yeah, and you know they embraced afterwards. Um, looked to be a, a pretty long embrace, nice moment. Um, but they both had very good tournaments. Both, uh, I mean, Messi had in the end four goals, five assists, which is phenomenal over the course of a fairly short tournament. Um, I think they both created twenty-one chances. You know, both both guys are are brilliant players, and um, the final was interesting because, like you said, JJ, it kind of echoed a lot of the tournament in that. Like, obviously, the second half, the last 10 minutes of that game were riveting because uh, mm. it felt like a goal was coming from either team. I mean, Messi was one-on-one -on -one with the keeper and, and right. did score. So it felt like something was going to happen, and in the end, it didn't. So the, the last 10 minutes were riveting. But, God, the first half was tough to watch. 21 fouls. I mean, it was like it was just like every 10 seconds, whistle, whistle, hard foul, argument between players. Like, there was no flow to it at all. Yeah. It was just like, this is rough. There was only, I mean, between them, they only mustered four shots on target, two each yeah. for the whole 90 minutes. So, you we know. We go now live to Ron Manager for some additional thoughts on cup finals. Mm, finals, aren't they? Tough, aren't they? Never know who's going to win. Oh, that was a nasty foul. Brazilian, wasn't he? Mm. <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> One uh, of the great characters. Yeah. And uh, like I said, the other guy I wanted to mention in this, uh, I, I mentioned before, Angel Di Maria scoring the winning goal. He yeah. was kind of pushed out almost of the Argentinian picture. Like we talk a little bit sometimes about um, Thomas Muller, Mats Hummels, like guys who were kind of out of the German picture and they were brought back in. It felt like Di Maria was trending in that direction. And even still, I think this is only his second start in this tournament. Like he's not for Argentina. It doesn't seem all the time that he is what he is for PSG. Um, so that had to feel good for him. Like you said, it, it kind of came somewhat courtesy of a, of a Brazilian mistake, but he had a lot to do with it. Great ship of the keeper. And it snapped a career long 13 game scoring drought for him with Argentina. It was his first goal JJ for Argentina since the 2018 world cup game against France that, uh, what was it? Four, three, that one. Yeah. The four, three. 
Yeah. And he scored an absolutely brilliant goal in that game. Yeah. Uh, so I felt good for him as well. I'm sure that was, you know, I think I saw a quote beforehand of Messi. Di Maria said after the match that Messi had told him before the game, this this is your final. And Di Maria took that clearly to heart and scored. He the finished goal. brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly with uh, with Ederson coming flying at him. It was yeah. really, really good. God, this weekend between like Brazil, Argentina at the Maracanã and then the next day, England, Italy at Wembley, both cup finals. Like, God, what a weekend this was. And and I'm going to have serious post-tournament uh, blues, I think. Stop. Sorry. U.S. in action. Like, people have probably seen it by the time that this is airing. Speaking of which. Get I on can board. Na- I can name the team if you'd like. Uh, yeah, I guess we are within an hour of kickoff. Uh, Matt Turner and goal. Sam Vines, Walker Zimmerman, Paul Ariola, Giassi Zardes, Miles Robinson, Jackson Ewell, Jonathan Lewis, Sebastian Leggett, Shaq Moore, and Kellen Acosta. Where for out thy DK? Hmm. Um, a lot of players we've uh, kind of already seen quite a lot of, but let's not question Triple G until we... Uh, obviously, um, Haiti are dealing with um, dealing with a lot. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be curious to wake up and see how this game goes. Cause I have no idea where I'd watch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, in terms, I don't have a specific preview of this game that would be pointless because it, it's going to be played by the time you listen to this, just for the tournament as a whole, you know, obviously there are guys that I'm, I'm curious about. We talked a little bit about that on the podcast where the squad was named. Um, but you know, there, there are potential world cup qualifying spots on the line here that guys can play their way into. Uh, so like Matt Turner being in goal is interesting to me. Now he's not going to pass um, Stefan or Horvath necessarily, but he could work his way possibly being the third keeper and, and part of their, their group moving forward. Um, so I'll be curious about that. Also, you know, I don't think Bearhalter knows what his 11 is yet in this tournament. So you know, I'm sure maybe you're, you're, I don't know if you're on Twitter right now, if you're seeing a freak out over DK not being included pump, I would say pump the brakes. They're going to ease their way into this tournament here. And, you know, as we get in, hopefully advance out of the group stage, hopefully I'm trying not to be arrogant, JJ. That's one of my uh, annual new year's resolutions when it comes to us soccer. Um, but if they get out of the group stage, I'm, I'm sure DK will play a role. Um, so we'll see. I, I will say this about the U S the last thing I'll say on them. Like, I hope that this isn't a, in, in terms of an American fan base that is like rabid over this team. Uh, I don't, I personally am not viewing this as a title or bust tournament for them. I think Mexico, even on the heels of a, a nil nil draw to start out the tournament against Trinidad and Tobago. And with them, even with them losing Chucky Lozano to a, a bad head injury, that was, that was not. I feel terrible for him. I hope he's okay. Um, I still think I look at that Mexican team and I still think that is the clear team to beat in this tournament. They have many of their A-list guys. The U.S. simply does not. So if, you know, boy, I sound like a a loser mentality right now saying this, but I'm just trying to like be a little bit grounded here in, in realism. Like I don't, this U.S. team is just not better than that Mexican team. So look, look, we can, t- we all have a different conversation. If the U S go out prematurely to facing Mexico, I think that we should be able to handle other opposition. But if this comes down to a USA, Mexico situation, whether it's the final semi, whatever, um, that's, that's a tall order 
for this group. So let's not fire Triple G just yet. Let's just see how this plays out. I, I think those words are wise. Let's see how this plays out. Um, yeah. I, I'll go with that. Well, you know how it is with him. Like for some reason, since the day Bear Halter was hired, there is a segment of this fan base that thinks whether it's because of Jay Bearhalter's role with the U.S. setup or, or whatnot, there's just people that are that are against him. And look, I get some of it. They're not perfect, this team. Bearhalter's made some some mistakes, of course. Like I'm not saying everybody who, who's not in love with him is wrong. Um, but I also think there's parts of this fan base that don't give him a chance. And like the wins are not him but the losses are, you know, the wins are because, oh, Pulisic did this or Weston McKinney or whatever. And the losses are all on him. Uh, so I'm not that guy. And I don't think you are either. And I think most no. sensible fans are not. So we'll but see just, how this goes. Just because this is a mainly MLS, uh, you know, selection or largely MLS selection. Right. doesn't 19 mean he, guys, right? Doesn't mean he won't come in for criticism, but let's see how it plays out. I think that's the safest policy. So there you go. You're in Ireland. Uh, I can't, I'm not good at math. I don't know what time it is there. Is it 1 a.m.? It's 1 a.m. So okay. I, I really got to go to bed. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time there with your family, uh, whoever you're, you're spending time with. Um, I'm sure it's lovely. And uh, you and your dad, go go have a beer and celebrate England's defeat together. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I'm definitely not going to be a psychopath now and put on the BBC post-match Um conversation and drink wine definitely not doing that no that wouldn't be like you no oh man this tournament was so much fun uh thank you everybody listening to this podcast throughout the course of this tournament uh it's been great interacting seeing your guys tweets um this is this has really been fun and this summer of soccer continues like we said the gold cup and we'll start to kind of ease in back to club football and transfer like you said you kind of mock it and i get it because transfer rumors are so damn tedious but they can be interesting. There's obviously some big names that are in flux right now. Uh, so we'll talk about all that. So this was, this was good, man. I enjoyed this. Thanks, man. Uh, thanks for every minute of it. Thanks to everyone who listened. A big congratulations to our uh, Italian listeners and to our Italian American listeners and our Italian listeners all around the world. Well done. And uh, commiserations to our English friends. And, um, you know, you'll be back. Yeah. Near my house, there was a, um, in the town near me, like downtown, the downtown part of it, there's a big Italian population and they set up huge screens on the street oh, and like close it. And like, so when the game ended, I watched it at home, but when the game ended, I'm, I'm close enough to this downtown part where I, they're setting off fireworks. Like you could hear, like Jack went up to the window. He's like, why are there, it was daytime. It was sunny out. Like it wasn't nighttime. There's no reason normally for fireworks to be going off. He said, daddy, why are fireworks going off now? I was like, because that game that you refused to watch with me, that's why. <laughs> that's why, Jack. <laughs> but yeah, this was this was a blast, man. I, I enjoyed the hell out of this. It's good we end the podcast on a bitter interaction between you and your young son. It was a teaching moment, okay? It wasn't bitter interaction. It was a teachable father-son moment. <laughs> this was fun, man. To you, I say... Check you later, fun boy. See ya. Forza Zori. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 